BBC Audio presents Doctor Who, The Sinister Sponge and Other Stories. Read by John Coleshaw, Fraser Hines, Dan Starkey, Louise Jameson and Nicola Bryant. Terror on Tyro. From the Doctor Who Annual, 1967. Read by John Coleshaw. Well, well, well. Doctor Who rubbed his hands briskly together as he stared at his scanner screen. Back again, on Tyro. He spoke the words aloud, and with a thrill of comfort, mingled with a touch of pride. The space-time computer, with which he charted his journeys in TARDIS, had been damaged in the frantic escape from the castle of the Sons of Grek, and he had worked hard to repair it. He had decided to test his efforts with a trip to the planet Tyro. The success of his work was pictured in the sight screen at this moment. For beyond a great stand of trees, those peculiar metal-bodied and mobile trees peculiar to Tyro, rose the familiar mass of the Alloy Mountain, glinting in the ever-changing glare cast by Tyro's twelve orbiting stars. Doctor Who rolled down his shirt sleeves and began to put on his frock coat. He chuckled to himself, like a small boy nursing a secret. Hmm. I wonder what Argon and his friends will say when I stroll in on them, he murmured. Argon was the leader of the Stags, a race of highly intelligent amphibians with whom Doctor Who had established a close link on his last visit. For it was only by his help that they had averted an invasion by the Outer Fringe forces. Well, I'd better refresh my memory about the lay of the land, mused Doctor Who. He turned away from the control panel and crossed the gleaming floor of his ship to the library. Here, ranged in endless rows on vast shelves, were the microfilm files of his past adventures. He pressed a button on the selector band. A green lamp began to glow, and Doctor Who stepped across to the map table, which lit up from below as he stepped in front of it. Looking down, he examined the map of Tyro, which the stags had helped him to draw. Hmm. Doctor Who leaned both elbows on the map table and searched for the stand of trees showing on his scanner. When he found them, he murmured with vexation. Oh dear, it appears that TARDIS has materialized on the wrong side of the alloy mountain. Hmm. He straightened up, rubbing his chin thoughtfully. to see if the space-time computer is in perfect working order again, he said. As he walked back to the control panel, he continued. Mm, I will set the space selector to move TARDIS to the other side of the mountain, but keep the time control tuned to the present. He switched off the scanner screen. His hands began to run over the dials and switches, but this time TARDIS did not respond. There was a faint shivering in the floor beneath his feet and the lowering decibels of the engine whine faltered and changed to a complaining rumble. Clicking his tongue with vexation, Doctor Who stepped quickly to another instrument panel to check his fault locator. He stared down at the small glass panel and the numbers spinning around inside it. M6, he exclaimed. One of the clister valves. He stepped to another part of the board and opened a protective covering. He ran a slender finger over the glistening valves until he came across the damaged one. As he held the glass-walled valve in his hand, 
a sudden chill of fear swept over him, for he saw at once that the trouble lay in the need to replenish the supply of liquid magnetite that acted as a conductor. Oh, what an idiot I am! He exclaimed aloud. I used the last of the magnetite for some experiments about a month ago. I really meant to replenish the stock at once. Dear me! His mild expression of dismay bore no resemblance to the turmoil inside him. He was in a dreadful fix. There was nothing he could use to replace the liquid magnetite in repairing the valve. And unless he could repair it, he might be destined to live out the remainder of his life on Tyro. Suddenly, relief flowed through his whole body like a warming drink. But of course, he exclaimed, Argon will be able to help me. I must find him. Without any delay, he set about his preparations briskly. He knew well that Tyro was not a very hospitable planet, and there would be many dangers to face in crossing the unknown forest to be seen on his scanner screen. One of his pockets now bulged with concentrated food tablets. He placed the precious clister valve in an inside pocket, picked up his ivory-handled cane, and stepped out of TARDIS. After locking the door, he set off towards the forest. The ground was springy with moss below his feet. His worst fears about the inhospitable nature of this part of Tyro were realized as he drew near the forest. Before his eyes stretched a nightmarish growth of vine and trees, of mushroom-headed stalks, of gyrating tentacles swaying from every branch and limb. On the outskirts of this primeval green hell, Doctor Who hesitated. It seemed madness to plunge into it, yet there was no other way around it, according to the microfilm map. Steeling himself against the horrors which lay ahead, Doctor Who plunged into the forest. His feet squelched in mud. The foul stench of rotting vegetation made him choke. He took out his handkerchief and tied it around his face. As he pressed on, he was careful to avoid going too close to the metal-bodied trees. From past experience, he knew that they could move with cunning stealth, though very slowly, once they had selected a victim. It became darker and darker. Here, under a roof of writhing plants and branches, the glare of the twelve stars could not penetrate. From time to time, he checked his direction by the electronic compass which he carried in his pocket. Suddenly, the harsh chittering of an Oriel made him pause and glance upwards. He knew the trick of these monster birds in diving down upon any moving creature and carrying it away to the filthy Ares on the Alloy Mountain. The Oriel, its scaly body crouched on a high branch, eyed him with a malevolent gaze. Doctor Who raised his cane. Get away! Go on! You ugly brute! He yelled. The bird spread its armoured wings. As Doctor Who turned to spring back, a vice closed over his foot and tripped him. He fell, sprawling, his mouth and nostrils filling with stinking mud. He did not remember anything more for a while. His first rational thought, when he opened his eyes, was that he could no longer be on Tyro. There was a roof over his head, so he must be back in TARDIS. He struggled to his feet, staring about him, wide-eyed. Directly before him curved a yellow transparent wall. It was hard and shiny and smooth. Through it, 
he could see a venous pattern of amber lines. The lines slowly and evilly, like some weird system of arteries, pumping some kind of life-giving juices. He turned his head. The yellow wall, which was cup-shaped, encircled him. He was standing on a pulpy mass of slime and small, hard bits of unidentifiable material. Above his head, the yellow, horn-like substance curved into a three-segmented lid. Each segment showed a long, muscular cluster of fibres, joining it to the main body for all the world like a long gate hinge. Doctor Who knew then where he was. After being tripped and stunned by one of the creeper vines, he had been scooped up by one of the huge carnivorous poppy plants. He rapped hard upon the walls of his prison as he moved in a circle and listened each time with great care. Finally, he was satisfied. Well, this appears to be the weakest point, he murmured. So I'd better start from here, trying to cut my way out. Taking his knife from his pocket, he began to hack away on the hard membrane before him. It was a slow job, but at last he raised a long strip of the horn, which he tore away in triumph. He continued his hacking with redoubled effort. He knew that very soon now, the digestive juices of the carnivorous plant would eat through his shoes, and then gradually he would be digested, melted down, reduced to the indignity of a mid-morning snack. The plant, which had imprisoned him, began to dislike the work he was doing on its hide. The cup-shaped trap began to sway from side to side. Doctor Who felt his knife go right through the petal. He widened the hole with his cane and peered out. He could make out the ground, slimy and wet, some ten feet below. He began to wield the knife again. The poppy swayed faster than ever. Then Doctor Who lurched forward as the cup dipped. The three-segmented lid sprang open, and he was flung out. Doctor Who rose, panting, to his feet. He picked up his knife from where it had fallen and put it back in his pocket. Oh, my goodness! He gasped as he retrieved his cane from the undergrowth. I don't wonder that Argon and the Stags prefer to spend most of their lives in the water with such hungry neighbours as these all around them. He would clearly liked to have rested, but that would be fatal. All around him, the carnivorous flower heads were darting and swaying in search of the next meal. Fortunately, the Oriel seemed to have disappeared. Doctor Who strode resolutely forward. He was almost overcome by weariness, and he stumbled into a clearing. I must rest here. Have some food, he told himself. In the centre of the clearing, he was surprised to find a large pool of clear water. He sank down upon its banks, and taking his food tablets from his pocket, he selected a meal of Simosian sturgeon, prepared on his last visit to the planet Roe. It had all the full flavour of the giant fish, and Doctor Who was enjoying himself immensely, when he chanced to gaze down into the pool, made him freeze with astonishment. What? What? His voice was a trembling whisper. He looked closer. There was no mistake. Far below him, in the depths of the clear pool, 
Figures were moving slowly across his line of vision. Suddenly, he spotted the web-like feet, the fin-like appendages, and the pointed heads with their long side gills. He scrambled to his feet with a glad cry. Hargon! Hargon! It's the stags! He began to wave his arms and shout down into the water. Hello, can you hear me? I'm up here, Argon! His hopes sank when he saw that the shimmering figures far below in the water could not hear him. Having crossed the bottom of the pool, they vanished one by one into the shadows. Doctor Who sank down dejectedly. In bitter silence, he munched a tablet of exotic fruits, scarcely appreciating the exquisite flavors released in his mouth. He was lost in thought, and a faint rustle from behind warned him of the ever-present dangers. He rolled clear and scrambled to his feet. One of the mobile trees had inched its way across the clearing, branches ready to grasp and tear him to pieces. Doctor Who took a deep breath. Hmm. I can see there will be no relaxation for me until I get through this dreadful forest, he pondered. But what is the use of going on? If Argon and the stags are at the bottom of that pool, hmm? He checked his compass and made a quick reckoning from the micromap. It was not far to go before he would be clear of the forest. He decided to press he was on. utterly weary by the time the nightmare journey was done. Staggering from the fringe of the forest, he threw himself down on the ground. He could have gone to sleep on the spot, but he knew that was impossible. Even here in the open there were dangers. He must find some form of shelter. Doctor Who looked around. If he were to follow his compass direction, he would soon be climbing the foothills of the towering Alloy Mountain. But I don't think I have the strength to climb, he told himself. Dotted about the slopes of the foothills, he could see large green balls. For a moment he was puzzled as to what they could be. Then he recognized them. Ah, now I remember. Giant cabbage plants, <laughs> he mused. The words sank slowly into his tired brain. Then they crystallized into an idea, which brought new hopes surging through him. Why, yes, of course. Those are the plants which open out in the light, and then roll into a ball. Hmm. If I can get inside one, I might snatch the sleep I need without fear of attack. He pressed on up the slopes. A glance skyward told him that of the twelve orbiting stars, which provided Tyro with its constant glaring daylight, six or more had reached a stage in their ellipses when much of their light was lost to this side of the mountain. In short, this was as close to night as this planet would ever come. Doctor Who broke into a run. He could see that the giant cabbage nearest to him was already reacting to the loss of light. The huge leaves, which had been spread wide to cover hundreds of square feet of ground, were now beginning to curl inwards. He reached the spot and managed to grasp one edge of a leathery leaf. Hauling himself over the edge, he rolled down into the heart of the cabbage. It was warm and soft. For a moment, Doctor Who was tempted to close his eyes and go straight to sleep but a sense of danger would not let him rest yet. Already, the green leaf was curling over his head. 
the little space in which he lay would soon become more cramped as the leaves pressed down. He must find some way to prevent himself being stifled, crushed. I have it! He picked up his cane, smiling to himself. The very thing! He propped the cane upright and held it there until the leaves had closed tighter, holding it in place. He had constructed a kind of small tent. Five minutes later, he was asleep. His dreams were deep but disturbed. It seemed that he found himself astride one of the loathsome Oriels, as it winged its way on ponderous wings over jagged peaks. Suddenly, from every peak, there sprang other Oriels, and astride each one was a stag. Doctor Who raised his arm and shouted a welcome, but a hail of darts fell about him, and the stags only screamed with fury. Then followed a frantic chase, with Doctor Who urging on his bird and the stags closing in around him. Suddenly, he lost his grip and fell from his perch. He plunged downwards, turning over and over and over. He awoke in a sweat of fear. For a few nightmare seconds, the dream clung to him, for he was, in fact, turning over and over. Then he realized what must be happening. The giant cabbage was rolling, or being rolled, down a slope. The resilient walls of his tiny prison ensured that he was not hurt by the tumbling motion. Nevertheless, he was greatly relieved when, at last, the cabbage came to rest, and he was able to stand upright and dust his clothes. Once again he produced his knife and began to carve his way out. The leathery leaves were simple, compared with the horn-like petals was able to step cautiously through the hole he had carved. He stared around him. He was in some kind of cave, at the end of a long passage which sloped upwards. Obviously, the cabbage had just been rolled down that slope. All around were other giant cabbages. There was a rumbling noise from the passage. Trundling down into the cave came another cabbage, propelled by the powerful legs of a monster ant. My goodness, marveled Doctor Who. I had forgotten how huge these insects are on Tyro. They're every bit as big and fearsome as the Zabi on Vortis. He dodged out of sight as the ant came scurrying towards him, its six legs touching each of the giant cabbages in its larder, as if to make sure by counting that it had not been robbed. One of the legs fetched Doctor Who a blow on the arm that sent him sprawling. He sat up, rubbing himself ruefully. But the ant had noticed nothing, and was now scurrying back up the passage, which no doubt led to the surface of the ground. Doctor Who grasped his cane and made for the passage. I must get out of here, hmm? before that insect tries to roll another giant cabbage down here, he told himself. No time to waste. He toiled up the slope, noticing that light was filtered into this underground ant city by means of shafts sunk vertically from the hill slopes. The slope leveled off into a passage. As he walked along it, Doctor Who saw that it was honeycombed with side passages. A scuffling noise made him halt. A monster ant had emerged from one of the other passages, only ten paces from him. There was no time to hide. The great shining black compound eyes were already focused upon him. A jointed leg shot out. Doctor Who ducked, and the leg whistled over his head and smacked against the wall, dislodging rocks and earth. He made a dive for one of the side passages. As he raced down it, he heard the monster scuttering after him. 
Fortunately, the passage began to grow narrower. He could hear the ant shell catching against rocks with a metallic ring. Then Doctor Who tripped and went sprawling. For a moment, he lay half expecting to feel the crushing blows of those six massive legs and the slicing agony of the dreaded mandibles. But when he looked up, he was relieved to see that the monstrous insect had become firmly jammed in its efforts to penetrate the narrow passage. Thankfully, Doctor Who scrambled to his feet. He ran on. Other passages opened up before him, but he hesitated as a shrill, unearthly scream blood came from cold with fear. Yet there was such a note of pathetic agony about it that Doctor Who could not ignore it. He strode resolutely towards the scream. An invisible light source glowed at the end of the passage. Dazzled after walking in semi-darkness for so long, Doctor Who paused and shielded his eyes. As he did so, he was seized from behind by clammy arms. Or were they arms? For as he sought to free himself from the grip, Doctor Who discovered he was being pinioned by fin-like appendages. A startling thought flashed into his mind as he went down under the weight of half a dozen chill bodies. Wait! Wait! He managed to gasp. It's Argon, isn't it? Aren't you the stags? His attackers withdrew at once voicing their astonishment in the gurgling whispers which Doctor Who remembered so well. He sat up, gasping for breath, but he managed to smile at the fish-like creatures standing around him. One of them, taller than the rest, stepped forward with an eager gurgle. Doctor Who! Willing fins helped him to his feet. I... I can't... Believe it, gurgled Argon. Is it really you, Doctor? Yes, it's really me, Argon, said Doctor Who. And thank goodness I found you. But what are you doing here? When did you return to Tyro? How did you find us? How? Doctor Who cut off the flood of questions with a wave of his hand. Not so fast, Argon. He said testily. Just how I came to be down here in the bowels of the planet would take too long to explain. But I was on my way to find you. After TARDIS materialized on the wrong side of Alloy Mountain. I had a dreadful time coming through the forest, but I saw you. Walking about the bottom of a pool there. Hmm? How can that be? Hmm? The stags whispered together. Pointing to a passage that led to an upper level. Argon explained... We were not at the bottom of the pool, Doctor. What you saw was our reflection as we made our way here through the water-filled passages that lead from our home lake. Doctor Who nodded. I see. And what brings you here, Argon? And what was the scream I heard? The tall amphibian motioned him to follow. Crouch low, he gurgled. And make no sign. I will show you a horror you have never met with in all your travels. Doctor Who obediently crept after him. The floor of the tunnel sloped up gently for a while, then leveled, then turned downwards again. The walls were vertical and perfect, with a smooth glazed look. 
The ceiling curved from wall to wall in a perfect arc, and it was aglow with light. It opened into a high-ceilinged chamber, and it was from the smooth walls of this strange place that the light was emanating. Doctor Who saw that Argon had drawn a gun from his belt and was holding it in readiness. He wriggled towards a pillar, motioning Doctor Who to do likewise. They huddled close, looking around them. The chamber bore the stamp of an earlier civilization. The rock had been smoothed to take primitive murals, showing strange creatures in various hunting scenes. A part of Doctor Who's mind admired the basic techniques. Outlines in low relief had been cut into the rock. Details delicately etched in, and colors brought up, apparently by altering the composition of the rock itself. At the far end of the chamber, the wall was pierced with perfectly circular openings of various sizes. Below them, the rock floor opened into some sort of pit. And it was towards this pit that the stag leader now gestured. Sprawled on the edge of the pit, Doctor Who now saw the body of one of the amphibians. He had his gun in his fins and had apparently died fighting. Doctor Who realized that this was the reason for the awful scream he had heard. What? He began, but Argon gestured in warning. Shh. Watch. It is coming again. An eerie glow of greenish light was coming from the pit. Slowly its source came into sight. A ball of dazzling brilliance, oval, about the size of a man's torso. But as it emerged into the chamber, it seemed to grow rapidly. It swelled until its extremities almost touched the walls. It looked like incandescent metal. But Doctor Who somehow felt that it wasn't hot. It seemed to move at will and to hover without support. In his eagerness to see more, Doctor Who moved without thinking away from the pillar. A rumble came from the tentacle lifted, clutching an object that resembled a flashlight. A blinding lance of heat shot towards Doctor Who. It hit the rock close to his feet. A sound came from the rock, like ice pressed upon a hot stove. Smoke puffed upward. A long curved scar opened up. Doctor Who was almost swept off his feet as Argon hauled him to safety. They lay crouched behind the pillar for a few moments. Then Argon peered out, ready to fire back. But there was no need. The object had vanished back into the pit. Doctor Who would have lingered, but the amphibian pulled him urgently from the chamber. My dear Argon, that was absolutely astounding. What in the great wide galaxy was it? Asked Doctor Who. Argon holstered his gun and said slowly, You remember Clarimo? Doctor Who's brow wrinkled. Then he remembered. Clarimo, ah, yes. The scientific genius sent from the out of star cluster. Let me see. Didn't he come here to uh, subjugate your planet? Argon nodded grimly. He did. And a great deal of damage he did before we could convince him that he was not wanted. Doctor Who nodded. Yes, yes, I remember now. But what has he got to do with that thing in the cave there? Argon's side gills contracted slowly. That thing in the cave 
is Clarimo. Doctor Who stepped back, astounded. Oh, surely not. Clarimo was withdrawn back to the Outer Fringe Star Cluster. We saw him disembodied and taken home by the molecular shaft. So we all thought. Argon nodded grimly. But after you had left us, our legs began to be poisoned. My people began to grow ill. Some died. At last, we traced the source of the evil to this cave directly under the Alloy Mountain. As you probably noticed, it was carved out by primitive tribes on this planet. But that thing living in the pit is Clarimo, and his presence is contaminating our underwater homes through the water-filled passages that run from here. Doctor Who ran a brisk hand over his fine mane of white hair. Clarimo, eh? Amazing, but yes, I see now. The rearrangement of his molecules would produce just such a grotesque appearance as that. Cold rage showed in the amphibian's opaque green eyes. But why did he remain to wreak such vengeance on us? He stormed. It was agreed with the Galactic Arbitrators and with the Outer Fringe Council that Clarimo should be waved a hand excitedly. Yes, but wait a minute, Argon. Let me think a moment. The molecular shaft worked on the principle of withdrawal, did it not? Of course. An object or being is disembodied and the molecules drawn up the shaft. Ah! But that may be the trouble. Doctor Who spoke excitedly. What do you mean? Demanded Argon. Well, supposing there was a mistake in operating the shaft, suppose the action was reversed. Hmm? What would happen then, eh? Argon stared at him. Well, I suppose that instead of being drawn upwards, the molecules would be propelled downwards. Doctor Who rubbed his hands together in satisfaction. Exactly. They would be. Very possibly propelled into that chamber, eh? The truth of what he was saying dawned quickly upon the amphibian leader. You're right. That must be the answer to the mystery. But what can we do about it? Doctor Who answered. Did you notice a hole in the roof of the chamber? The other nodded. What? about it. Well, that is the main conduit left by a former volcanic eruption long ago, said Doctor Who. My theory is that it leads to a crater somewhere near the top of Alloy Mountain, but that the top of the conduit is sealed off with a plug of solidified magma and lava. Argon looked at him with something close to awe in his eyes. You are perfectly correct, Doctor, he acknowledged. I know the crater well. The other nodded, well satisfied. Very good. Then here is my idea. If we could blow that plug out and leave the conduit free again. Then Clarimo could emerge and return to his base, cried Argon. Of course, it is a brilliant idea. Come, we must not delay. Let us get out of this accursed place and put the plan into operation. Two hours to return to the city of the stags. Then, 
After a brief meal, they set out for the mountaintop with the explosives. A mining expert from the Stag University set the charges, and everyone retired to the shelter of a neighboring peak. When the charges went off, it seemed as if half the mountaintop must have been blown away. Rocks were violently ejected from the vent, followed by finer lava dust. The Strombolian-type eruption continued for a full ten minutes. When the smoke and dust haze had cleared, the observers examined their work through powerful glasses. Good. Very good, murmured Doctor Who. If only the explosion hasn't blocked the lower part of the conduit. They kept their glasses trained on the mountaintop, waiting tensely for something to happen. There! A gurgling cry left Argon's lips as he saw the oval shape that was Clarimo emerging from the crater. It was no longer glowing, and it lifted fast towards the lip of the crater. They saw it gleam for a moment as it cleared the rocks. Then the watchers snatched their glasses away and rubbed their eyes as the oval shape vanished in a blinding flash. When they could look again, there was nothing to be seen. Argon turned towards Doctor Who and touched him gratefully on the shoulder with his fin. My dear friend, he said, is there anything we can do to repay you for solving our problem like this? Doctor Who smiled. He put a hand into his inside pocket and took out the clister valve. Yes, Argon, there is something you can do. I need a few drops of liquid magnetite to repair this valve. Without it, my TARDIS is grounded. Argon's chuckle bubbled out of him. A few drops? Why, my dear doctor, you can take as much as you want. A shipload, if you like. No, thank you, said Doctor Who. Just enough to ensure that my travels won't be interrupted again. Hmm? 